0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And tonight we're talking about Shiloh by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor, which is the last book in our season six, which includes both 1991 and 1992. So this book is the winner of the 1992 Newberry Medal.
1: I have a citation, and this is from the Newberry and Caldecott Awards, A Guide to the Medal and Honor Books uh, that was published by ALSK. Marty Preston, an 11-year-old West Virginian boy, befriends a stray dog, and while protecting the dog from abuse, wrestles with universal questions of honesty, commitment, and ethical decision-making. Marty discovers that discerning right from wrong is not as straightforward as he imagined.
0: So what did you think of this book?
1: So this is not the first time I've read this book and it's also not the first Phyllis Reynolds Naylor book that I've read. And all that is to say that I enjoyed this book and I thought that I I'm always grateful when the there's a heavy story told scaled to not be the worst possible version possible version of the story. <laughs> So it is really it is it is bad that there's a little dog and he shows up when Marty's wandering in the woods and the little dog has clearly been like abused and not and malnourished. And so Marty takes him in and at first hides him from his family because his family is just trying to make ends meet and they don't have they don't have extra food or money for a pet. And this is You know, I think I think I think uh, Naylor does a great job of showing that they are poor without saying like they were really poor, you know, like, yeah, Marty sleeps on the couch.
0: That was one Um, thing about the story is that you do get the really strong impression that everybody is trying their best. You know, there, there are a lot of stories where to create tension, the kid doesn't understand that his family can't afford the dog and is stubborn about it. Out of just like a lack of understanding or, you know, the kid can't go to his parents for help because they're distant or they're just, you know, it's how sometimes kids have like such a separate internal life from what their parents are aware of and that just the parents are not available for help. You know what I mean? Like they're there for, as like parent figures, but they're not actually there to help the kids really. And, they're
1: and that's not, not accessible.
0: Yeah, exactly. Not accessible. And that's just not the case in this book. The parents are not able to help him sometimes for practical reasons, but they want to, and they love him and they want him to understand like they too are trying their best as, as an adult. Now with kids of my own, <laughs> I appreciate a book that understands that sometimes grownups, Are trying their best and it still isn't working out. Yeah. I mean, I I completely agree with you. And I think that
1: it's really great that Marty never, there's never like a a confrontation about like, why, why can't we have more things? Or like, why do we have to be poor? You know, like Marty understands the rules and they're laid out very clearly. And it has nothing to do with his parents' lack of desire to give things to their family and their and have things for their family and for their children. And I think that the biggest example of that is once Marty has the dog and has made a little shelter for him out in the woods and he's named him Shiloh, he starts taking food from his own plate and giving it to the dog. And he doesn't see it as like a sacrifice. He sees it as sharing and as... And this is his, like, this makes sense to him, like, the share of food is coming from him, so it's okay, because he's giving away his share of food. Also with the purchasing of the kind of, you know, past the sale date groceries and just being really economical and really smart and to to take care of this dog that he knows that his family can't afford – but if he goes without a little bit or if he scraps a little bit, then he can he can take care of Shiloh
0: yeah it's it's really heartbreaking, although I think it's good i mean i I have never had to deal with it personally, but I have good friends who grew up with food you know food insecurity, and I think that a book like this. Is really good as representation so that kids can see themselves in a character like that where it's not a shameful thing like it's not his fault it's not his family's fault it's just the way it is and he's just trying to like solve a problem it's not an embarrassing thing it's just like okay how are we gonna how are we gonna take care of this dog (laughs) you know like let me go turn in cans for recycling and let me you know figure out this or figure out that but he, he does he makes it work
1: there is that point though where he realizes that the grocer thinks that the the food that's not top quality that he's getting, like the you know the the just expired food that he's buying, that Marty's buying, he he can tell that the grocer thinks it's for his actual family. There is that moment. There is that little moment of like, I hope they don't find out, and there's gonna be shame. <laughs> and I I you know. I think that that's really rings true, and I think it's sad that we have to that that's a that's something that makes sense and that would make sense to Marty and make sense to everybody in the book. You know, mm-hmm. the kind of the economic reasons behind the way their ways of life. But I also think it's interesting because we're gonna our next season is 1983, and the winner that year is Dicey Song, and there is a lot of food insecurity in that. And so I know we'll talk about it more um, yeah. when we get to that and just like, you know, making things work, that kind of ingenuity that and, and resiliency of spirit that you see a lot in children's books. And in this, these two cases, you see them in really practical terms.
0: One of the things that's notable about the main character, too, is that I feel like in stories about poverty or real hardship, little kids, characters who are kind of at the cusp of adolescence can go one way or another. And instead of getting mean, which is demonstrated in the villain of this story, like that that character was abused growing up and it he let it turn him into an abuser. And Marty just went the opposite direction and was very kind and very loving, but I think the parents described in this book have a big role to play in that. There's a quote on in my book it's page 132, and it's kind of toward the end where he's still working off the debt for Shiloh. but Shiloh's at his house with his family and everything's out in the open and his family's clearly like falling in love with Shiloh. And his dad says, "Now all we got to worry about is how we can afford to feed him as well as ourselves. But there's food for the body and food for the spirit, and Shiloh, sure enough, feeds our spirit. And so I think that the the attitude and the the loving environment go a long way towards determining the way that Marty grows up, you know, regardless of economics, like there's there's a family dynamic that's really beautiful.
1: Once Marty has, you know, he's stumbled across Shiloh, the dog that he named Shiloh, he figures out that he's actually a a dog that a neighbor has lost. And this neighbor, as Marcy has indicated, is abusive with his animals and he's this very rough figure. And Marty decides to conceal Shiloh, conceal the knowledge that he has Shiloh and conceal Shiloh for Shiloh's well-being. So even though he has to sacrifice food and he's lying to his family, which he's very aware of how bad that is, he feels like it's for the greater good. It's to save Shiloh's
0: life. Yeah, so I I like, too, that there's no hiding the moral ambiguity here, right? Marty is very aware of how wrong it is to lie and to essentially steal Shiloh, but he has to weigh that against, you know, saving an abused animal or doing, like, there's the right thing and then there's the writer thing. And I don't know, there's obviously lots of decisions in life. Most decisions in life are not that clear cut. So it's it's a little bit refreshing to have that portrayed because it makes you feel a little bit better about having to make complicated choices in your own life, even as a kid. So he has built this pen out in the middle of nowhere. Well, not in the middle of nowhere. Out in the middle of the the hill that is behind their house. And his mom discovers him because he's been sneaking food out to Shiloh by saying that he's too full at dinner, but he gets hungry before bedtime. So he saves himself a plate of food saying that he's going to eat it himself before bed. But he really sneaks it out to Shiloh. And his mom notices that he takes like squash. And she's like, you have never voluntarily eaten squash in your life. I know that something's up. And she followed him and saw it. And he, she doesn't want to keep a secret from his dad, but he makes her promise to give him just one day to figure out what to do about it. And it just so happens that that night in the pen out in the back, Shiloh is attacked by another dog and really severely injured, and there's no hiding that from either of his parents because of the noise it makes and how severely Shiloh is injured. And so his dad scoops them up and takes them to the local doctor, who's not a veterinarian but can at least help, and uh, everything sort of blows up from there. At this point, kind of just too many people know about Shiloh, and it's going to get back to the dog's owner, Judd. But Marty's parents agree to keep Shiloh there and not tell Judd anything until um, Shiloh is better because everybody recognizes that the way Judd treats his dogs, Shiloh is not going to recover if he goes back injured.
1: So Judd shows up at the Preston's house and he is like, I know you have my dog and I want him back um, as soon as he's healed up. And... Marty's dad spins it as, you know, we wanted him to rest and get healed up, which I think is a smart way of of handling that. And thankfully, Judd goes along with it.
0: The morning that they're supposed to take Shiloh back, Marty decides he's going to go talk to Judd and tell him that he's just not going to do it. And he doesn't doesn't know what he's going to say exactly or how he's going to convince him but he just knows that he has to so he's on his way over there cutting through the woods like 5 in the morning and he sees Judd illegally shoot a deer and there is a newer game warden in town who's very strict unlike the previous one so Judd has a habit of doing this whenever he wants but he will get a $200 fine if he's caught doing it now
1: And Judd does not have $200 that he would like to part with. No. Um, So he, he realizes that Marty has him kind of in a rock and a hard place. But Marty doesn't just. Marty alludes to the fact that he could blackmail him, but he also offers to work for Shiloh, to work off enough, to do enough work to pay for Shiloh.
0: Yeah, it's it's suggested by Judd in the first place, but Marty jumps on it because it's, there's no other way he's going to earn the money to pay for Shiloh, even if Judd would sell him. So it seems like a win-win. Several afternoons,
1: he goes to work for Judd. Judd's working him really hard. And then Judd is like, do you really think I'm going to give you Shiloh?
0: Yeah, he basically implies that Because they don't have a witness to their agreement. It's not valid. And so he's not going to give up the dog, even though Marty has been working, you know, per the terms of their agreement to pay for Shiloh. But Marty decides that regardless of what Judd does, he is going to live up to his side of the agreement. So even though Judd is making fun of him the whole time for doing something for no reason, he keeps doing all the work as hard as he can, and he even works extra, and it's really confusing for Judd, but he eventually kind of wins him over, not to be friendly or anything, but he he does his best not to be antagonistic and to work really hard, and at the end... Judd is basically like, well, guess you've got a dog. Yeah, and it's – I mean, I feel like
1: there's a lot of potential for Judd to be really, really violent on – like on screen, so to speak, and be really I, – I mean, a caricature. I do think he's probably toned down because he, it is a children's book, and I think if it were – Anything from YA up for the audience, I think we would see a lot more detail.
0: Well, and I I have not read them, but apparently there's a Shiloh Quartet, right? This is the first mm-hmm. in four books. And Judd eventually is uh, under suspicion of murder. So he does get a lot worse. Okay. So in this first book, we just get an intro to how horrible
1: Judd is, but... Eventually he kind of sees reason and thankfully little Shiloh is out of his clutches. I think it's, you know, there are so many books about dogs and so many movies about dogs. And for me, it's very hard not to be moved by them because I think most of them, even the ones that aren't are adorable. Um, Because there's some really ugly dogs out there, but they're all adorable. (laughs) But just the, the thought of this little beagle who has like imprinted on this little kid and is looking for someone to save him and just the bond that's portrayed between Marty and Shiloh it's just so it's just so touching and it's just so beautiful
0: yeah I think there's a a reason that that the whole dog book is such a trope in children's books and Newbery books particularly but it does work I mean it It's like the most sympathetic little character ever.
1: (laughs) Well, because, you know, we, there are a fair amount about rodents too and about cats. And, but I think there's something about the characterization that we've given dogs. They are seen as pals, you know, Mm -hmm. as friends more so than maybe some of the other animals. And also, it's super important to me that, that Shiloh lives in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because we know there are many dogs that do not make it to the end of the book.
0: We're looking at you, old yeller.
1: hmm Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I, you know, I just, I think this is, I think as a jaded adult reader, like, If I was reading this for the first time, I'd be like, Shiloh's going to die. Shiloh's (laughs) going to die and Marty's going to learn a lesson. But as, you know, as a kid reading this, it's like, what's going to happen to Shiloh? What's going to happen with Marty? And then, you know, ingenuity and hard work and being an honest, decent person kind of win the day and save Shiloh's life. And I think that's a really good message. It's not always the truth and it's all not always the real world, but I think it's a really good thing for kids to learn to strive for.
0: Yeah. And I I like that he feels like he can go to his parents for help. They're not always able to help him, but like he's honest with them. Like when Mm -hmm. he does eventually start to lie to them, he understands how bad it is. Like there's just no, like I know better than everybody else attitude. Mm -hmm. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Marty
1: doesn't have to be humbled. He already is humbled. Yeah, already humble. Not in the way of like, oh, he's from humble beginnings, but more like he, you know, his parents have been, and his life have, have instilled these values in him, where he could take care of a dog and see a dog in a bad situation and and ner- be a nurturer. I think that's that's a really special uh, special type of character.
0: Yeah, and there's not even a neat and tidy ending. You know, like when he does essentially blackmail judd and giving him shiloh he knows that it's not right and he knows that there are repercussions beyond making a morally bad choice like he's poaching deer you know judd is poaching deer and by not turning him in marty's making it easier for judd to continue to do that so like this decision is good for him and his family and shiloh but it's bad for the deer and it's not great for judd's other dogs either you know, he's not, he's not helping the other pets that have been abused, but he understands that you have to make hard choices and you can only sometimes, you know, do what you can do. And sometimes that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's always good to do as much as you can do, but I think accepting what you can do is also all right. I can't say that I have read anything by this author before, which is kind of shocking because I read that this was her 65th book when it won. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's the more I read about it, the more I don't understand how I missed out on these books and her other books. Like, she's got a frequently banned series about a girl named Alice that has like 25 or 28 books in the series. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I've never read any of them. It's crazy. You haven't you haven't read any of them? Not any of. I never even heard of them.
1: Oh my god! Okay, so those were those were important books to me. I was very into them because there's like a it's like a, an Alice book for each year of definitely of her adolescence. But it starts I want to say like when she's like eleven, and then it goes through all these different stages of her life so you you see her grow up and that that was like i just i really loved reading that series when i was a, when i was young because it gave me an insight into i don't know just kind of like everyday life which there wasn't always just fiction about everyday life at the time you know late 80s into the early mid 90s there wasn't always like really really thoughtful adolescent fiction I mean you had Judy Bloom and you had N.M. Martin and you had some other people and I'm not saying that they didn't fall in that category because they definitely did but they also had like you know N.M. Martin was, was the babysitter club of course so you had teen girls as the center of the story but it was around this kind of fantasy of babysitting and this town and, like, their small-town life. And then you had Judy Blume's books, which were, you know, usually issue-based. Um, always a girl protagonist except for Then Again, Maybe I Won't, but issue-based. So we have Dini. She's in a brace. She's learning, how, she's learning how to love her body. We have Forever. It's about first time having sex. You have, you know, Are You There, Gotta to Meet Margaret. It's about you know starting menstruation as the audiobook narrator used to say when i would listen to <laughs> <laughs> menstruation um so you know the things i really the thing i really liked about the alice books is that it was kind of day to day kind of ordinary maybe smaller struggles and issues kind of like i feel like a lot of people or a lot of kids and who are now some of now are adults read the reina Telgemeier books that way where it's, you know, it's kind of slice of life in a way because you see her growing up, even though there are issues, very definite issues in the books, but you see her like everyday life and, you know,
0: yeah, you're just no. kind
1: of in, in their life with them.
0: That's great because you're right. I feel like I never read those books, but I feel like everything at that time was either like Sweet Valley High or R.L. Stein and there was nothing in the middle. <laughs> um. There were things
1: here and there, but it just wasn't. You know, you had the you had the Lurleen McDaniel books about oh where my people god, are dying of cancer. You know, I read every like,
0: one of those. Oh my god! Yeah,
1: so it's like you. It's like you. You did never got like a, or it was rare to have just like a straightforward fictional kid. Yeah. Like, almost like I would link it to Ramona in that way, because she had her, like, the smaller stories that comprise the books, of course, and they're all very comical and funny. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think I have to keep talking about it, but (laughs) I know what you're talking about with, like, there was horror, there was, like... Super idealized,
0: like, girl, teen stories.
1: Kind of of like softcore high school fantasy, you know, (laughs) like... stuff but you didn't you know and that was another reason why I think I liked the babysitter club so much they were entrepreneurs <laughs> <laughs> there was something different and there was something more like realistic about it but anyway but yeah I mean I you know I've I read I read the Alice books I read some of her one-off books so I mean I've been reading her for a long time and I think that I think in some ways, like, it is a departure. The Shiloh book is a departure for her because she is writing from the point of view of a boy. And that's not a usual thing for her books. Her books are usually very girl-centered. But I think that she does a great job of giving Marty a full character that includes characteristics that might have been once upon a time traditionally thought of as maybe feminine characteristics or traits in a character. So being thoughtful, nurturing, caregiving, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. So, and I, I mean, obviously there are boys and girls and theys, people of all types who are nurturing and caregiving and thoughtful. So it's always good to kind of round that out
0: in the portrayals. I was also impressed by the language. This book is set in West Virginia, and the vernacular is really well done, I think. The way the characters speak, if done badly, can be super distracting from the story. But in this case, it's so well integrated and believable that it doesn't come off as... I feel like sometimes when people try to make characters sound less educated or rural, it comes off as really condescending or just, just badly done. You know, it's just painted with this really heavy hand and that's not the case here at all. Yeah. I always appreciate a book that tells us the
1: setting. It kind of explains without directly explaining education level and geographical background Mm -hmm. of a family or the characters and then uses what's considered standard, standard language, so standard English. Because I feel like when you do get into writing accents, and this is also something that was drilled into me as a, a, like in school, when you get into writing accents, you're, I mean, it's often a can of worms at, at the best. At least it's offensive.
0: I think it would be disingenuous, as you said, to have them speak perfect English with perfect grammar when that's just not their education level. So it's not like she's trying to make them sound stupid or she's just trying to be realistic and succeeding.
1: Well, and I always think, and I I may be wrong about this, but I tend to think that authors who give you all the context clues that there's going to be a strong accent involved in her characters or their characters, I always feel like that's, the author asking the reader to just fill in with what they know. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like that goes a long way. One, that with the trusting of the reader, but two, it it opens it up to more interpretations and more, I guess, like the way, like the narration in someone's head, it's not as limited because you don't have this like very narrow dialect that's supposed to be happening. My book cover, I think a lot of the book covers have just just a dog on them, just the beagle, just Shiloh, which is cute and adorable. Some of them are picture, like photographs. Some of it is drawing. The edition that I read has a drawing of Shiloh and then Marty. Marty looks like the little banjo boy from the del- from Deliverance.
0: I've never well, seen I'm Deliverance. Glad he- <laughs> well, I'm
1: glad he seems to have gotten employment as a book cover model. It is disturbing.
0: <laughs> All right. Let me Google. Oh, my God. I- I've never seen Deliverance, but I know what you're talking about now. Oh my-
1: I've never seen Deliverance, but I've-, I've seen clips. Also, that was my mom and dad's first date. My mom should have run Ooh. when my dad suggested that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's horrifying. Oh, these are all cute covers except for that one. Mine is the one where Marty's laying on his back in the grass and Shiloh has its paws on him.
1: Oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's really cute. Is a beagle going to be big enough to, like, be on his shoulders? Well, I think he's laying on the ground. Oh, okay. Sorry, (laughs) I missed that part.
0: If you would like to see what book cover I'm talking about, check out our website. We have a picture for every uh book that we review, and I have a picture of my dog with this book uh in the grass in front of my house.
1: <laughs>
0: in case you're curious. But I do not have the scary scary deliverance child cover up on anywhere. Well, I will I'll take a picture of it and
1: um <laughs> you know that is not to say that everyone from appalachia looks like this child and i know that it was a stereotype in the movie but i do think there's a very very high chance that the artist used the banjo child as a reference like visual reference for this cover
0: (laughs) because the face is really similar i'll tell you what season six is not our uh, best season for book covers
1: Or it could be the best because they're pretty weird. At least these last two. Maybe. Mine is
0: cute. Mine is cute.
1: Yeah. I still can't get over Philip Molloy Tuchin on the
0: cover. Oh, my gosh. That one is ridiculous. I'm interested to see because, obviously, I, I collect first printings whenever I can, but I don't have firsts of any of these. So I would be very interested to see what the original printing first cover looked like for these. There's just such a yeah. wide variety in the cover art for these. I'm I'm a little curious to see what the actual original was.
1: I'm sure we can dig it up and we can find out, figure it out.
0: So, Jenny, do you have any readalikes?
1: I do. I have two. And they probably aren't super surprising. So the first one is Because of Winn-Dixie by Kate DiCamillo, and it is a Newbery Honor book. There's a little girl named India Opal... And she finds a dog and she names it Winn-Dixie because of where she found the dog. India, Opal, and Winn-Dixie um, end up bringing the town together. And I always remember this big scene of, of a party at the end. And it, that reminds me of Pollyanna. And I, I, I think that there's a lot of similarities of, you know, the dog helping build community
0: mm-hmm.
1: and family and i think that's really really cool and special.
0: The second one is Ribsy by Beverly Cleary. Oh,
1: Ribsy. Uh, yeah, and it it didn't win any Newbery honors or award, but of course Beverly Cleary did. And Ribsy is Henry Huggins's kind of old bony dog and and the book is about his various adventures around around town. And so again, it's about a dog having kind of a kind of bringing bringing family and bringing community together. And in both of these cases, the dogs live. And I think that's a very important thing to emphasize. (laughs) So,
0: Yay for dogs that survive. Mm -hmm. Although what they're surviving on, I can't tell you. I was so worried when I was reading this book because, you know, we have this uh, tradition of making a drink or a snack from the book. And while we have not been doing that during COVID because we've been recording separately if you've been listening, you know that we plan to have an episode where we kind of go through the drinks and snacks from the episodes we missed while we were apart. And everything in this book sounds so disgusting. I'm not eating old, old hot dogs mixed with yogurt. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I will not I just, make you do that. I saw the phrase lard bread and I was like, no, 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 Jenny, no. <laughs>
1: I, will, I will eat a circus peanut, but I am not eating rancid
0: hot dogs oh my gosh i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna read you a sentence from this book chapter eight i fix him up some frankfurters cut up and mixed with sour cream and little chunks of cheese he don't much like the cheese it sticks to his teeth and he turns his head sideways when he chews trying to get it off licks his chops afterward though and i was like nope nope hard nope (laughs) Okay. So I got it confused. It was
1: rancid sour cream, not yogurt. So yes, I'm not, we're not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) But if, if you Marcy want to eat some cheese and then chew on it sideways, shake my head like a dog. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's acceptable.
0: What if I just give my dog some peanut butter and and I'll just like take a picture of him doing the like thing. (laughs) (laughs) I could do that. (laughs) But, you know, he's 12 and his stomach is not up to the sour cream situation. I mean, I'm sure he would inhale a hot dog if given the opportunity. In fact, I know he would because my neighbor has this uh, fire pit in her backyard that she cooks dinner in sometimes. And she has this massive skillet. And so for anyone listening, my dog is a corgi and he is not tall. Um, and he, he's very kind of slow at his age until there's food involved. And so I hear this shout one day and my neighbors had huge, huge, gigantic pork chops. They were like a pound each cooking in the skillet on their fire pit out back. And my tiny little dog somehow made it over the fire, did not burn himself on the skillet, and hauled off an entire pork chop and he took <coughs> off running so fast we were all chasing him <laughs> because obviously it was too late for the pork chop for people by then but like he's a little dog right <laughs> it wouldn't make him really sick if he ate the whole thing but he was just like running and horking it down as he ran because he knew that we would take it away from him we never even found the bone okay i'm like people people who are listening marcy's dog
1: pierre is adorable but marcy's dog pierre is maybe a foot and a half tall and he's got little tiny legs and he's very round and this story is making me so happy it's
0: the image of him doing that it's ridiculous like he, he acts like he can't even get up on like our super low couch like i've never seen him do it unprompted but if one of the kids has like a Hawaiian roll or a sandwich or something, he I've seen him I've seen him make it up to a sandwich that like an adult is holding. Like, oh I don't, my god! Yeah, it's crazy. I think he can levitate when food's involved.
1: <laughs> well, I I think we've uncovered a, one of Pierre's secrets yes. because I can't think of any other way he's doing that. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Thanks so much for listening to our last episode of the sixth season of the Newberry Tart Podcast. We covered 1991 and 1992 awards season books this year, and our last episode focused on Shiloh by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. Next season is our seventh season, and we'll be starting with Dr. DeSoto by William Steak. Please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Also check us out on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and let us know what you think and what questions you might have. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart, That's NewberryTart.com.